certainly glad to have you here and we welcome you all to the services of the church this morning. Definitely thankful for your presence. As many of you know, as Brian mentioned, we've conducted a series of lessons on purity, sexual purity, for the teenagers of the congregation. Uh, we did two studies here at the church the previous couple of Sundays, and then we took a weekend, uh, went down to Mount Lebanon down in the Cedar Hill area, and uh, did a number of studies there, and we got a chance to uh, be there at the facility, sleep on some comfortable bunk beds, and just, just had a good time with the kids. Looking forward to get back in my own bed tonight, but uh, we, we had a good time with the kids. I had a good time, and uh, I believe it was productive for them. Uh, it was our goal to equip them to live in a world that tells them that purity does not matter. It was our goal to equip them to live in a world that tells them it is impossible to exercise self-control. It was our goal to equip them to live in a world that tells them that the biblical view of sexual purity is irrelevant and that it doesn't matter. Our focus was on sexual purity because that is something that our teens are dealing with. That's something they're facing in their lives and we wanted to, them to know what the scriptures say and we hope that we can encourage them to pursue that kind of life. A sexually pure life, a life that is pleasing to God that we can read about in the scriptures. And so with us wrapping up the purity study, I felt that it was only fitting that we continue the discussion on purity this morning for the whole congregation. We will continue speaking on purity, but we will expand beyond just sexual purity to discuss the pure heart of a child of God. And so I've titled this, uh, this message this morning, you can see on the screen there, Clean hands and a pure heart. Clean hands and a pure heart. Now, I hope that what I've prepared this morning is edifying to you and also that it challenges you to live a more godly life, a life that, exhibit, that is exhibited by clean hands and a pure heart. In the 24th Psalm, David wrote, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof the world and day that dwell therein. For he had founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. The psalm begins with David praising God for his wonderful creation. The world and all that is in it are God's. He made everything. The Bible says that he spoke it into existence. Now many in the world do not choose to yield to our God, not knowing or even refusing to accept that they were created by him. But we know our God. We know him as our creator, and we know that he is worthy of our praise and our glory. The psalmist asked the question, who is able to ascend into the hill of the Lord and stand before God in this holy place? Who is able to stand in the presence of such a high and holy God? And in the fourth verse, fourth verse the psalmist answers his own question. He says, the one who is able to ascend to the Lord, the one who is able to stand in his presence, is the one who has clean hands and a pure heart. It is one who has not lifted up his soul 
to trust in idols and who does not swear deceitfully or have deception or dishonesty in his heart. And so this morning we will focus on what it means to have clean hands and a pure heart. Now speaking of clean hands, it's not speaking of hands that are physically clean with soap and water, but it is speaking of our actions. It is a focus on the outward, things that we can see, the things that a person is involved in, the things that a person does. Clean hands are hands that have done the right things. They're hands that are innocent of wrongdoing. They're hands that are not blood-stained, but are righteous. Hands that are free of guilt, hands that are free of blame, hands that are void of evil, hands that are free from contamination. And a pure heart, it speaks of the inward. It speaks of the inward things. It speaks of a person's intentions, a person's motivations, a person's attitude, the things that drive them to do what they do. A pure heart is righteous and is innocent. And if that describes for us who is able to stand in God's presence, then we got to ask the question, who is able to do that? Does anybody qualify? Is there anyone that is really pure and righteous in his actions and his thoughts and his intentions? For Romans 3 and 23 tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glorious image of God. None of us are able to stand and say that we are pure or innocent by our own doing. Proverbs 20 and 9 says, Who can say I have made my heart clean? I am pure from my sin. Nobody. None of us is able to atone for our own sins or cause the stain of sin to be removed from our lives. Proverbs 30 and 12 says, There is a generation that are pure in their own eyes and yet is not washed from their filthiness. We can do everything in our power to refrain from sinning. I can try my best. And this proverb says we can even deceive ourselves and think that we are pure. We can look at the low standard that the world sets for purity, and we can deceive ourselves into thinking that we are upright and that we are righteous, and we can pat ourselves on the back and we can think that God should be pleased with us in the way that we live. But in reality, without the blood of Christ and without a life that abides in God's will, being clean from the stain of sin is impossible. God has set a way for sin to be dealt with. There is a way that God has ordained for us to find forgiveness and cleansing in his sight. There is a way for us to have clean hands and a pure heart. Let us consider King David of Israel when he was confronted by the prophet Nathan after he had committed adultery with Uriah's wife, and he made arrangements for Uriah to be killed in battle. The 51st Psalm says for us, Have mercy upon me, O God. Blot out my transgressions. He says in the second verse, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. He says, Cleanse me from my sin. In the third verse, he acknowledges his sin. He knows he has done wrong. 
David has kept this sin hidden for so long. He had committed adultery with Bathsheba, and as a result, Bathsheba became pregnant. And by this time, the child had been born. So that means that for a span of almost a year, this sin had been kept secret and has gone unconfessed. But with the confrontation of Nathan the prophet, David was forced to deal with this sin in his life. And he confessed to God. In verse 4 he says, Against thee and only thee have I sinned and done this evil. In verse 7 he says, Purge me with hyssop, and then I will be clean. Purge me with hyssop. Speaking of hyssop and blood in Exodus 12, as God instructed Moses and Aaron on how to observe the Passover, they were told to take hyssop, which is a bushy plant like you see there on the screen. And they would dip that hyssop in blood, and they, was, they were instructed to strike the doorposts of the home. And as the Lord passed through the land there in Egypt, he would see the blood on the doorposts of the home, and he would not strike anyone dead in that home. And also reading of hyssop in the Old Testament worship, we read of hyssop being used to dip and sprinkle blood, symbolizing the cleansing from sin. And so when David speaks of hyssop being cleansed, being purged, he is asking for God to cleanse him from his sin, and he pleads for God to wash him so that he can be whiter than snow. In verse 9, he pleads for God to hide his face from his sins, and he says, blot out his sins. And in verse 10, he asks God to create in him a clean heart and to renew a right spirit within him. And so as we read this 51st Psalm, what do we see? We see that apart from God, cleansing from sin is not possible. God is the one that is doing the cleansing. God is the one that is doing the forgiving. Purity is not possible without God. We can pray, we can express remorse, we can express guilt and shame, but until we're ready to obey God's commands to obtain forgiveness of sin, it will not be found, and we will remain in our sin. So we recognize and we understand that there is a path to purity, and we must turn to God to find it. If we desire clean hands and pure heart, we must turn to God to have our sins forgiven, to have our sins removed, to have our sins separated from us. The 119th Psalm says, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Wherewithal, it's a word that we may not use these days, but it simply means how or what. So the question the psalmist asked here is, how shall a young man cleanse his way? How can he become pure? And the answer is by taking heed or obeying God's word. We can find cleansing when we look to and obey God's word. The 103rd Psalm says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgiveth all thine iniquities. Yes, our God is willing to forgive all of our iniquities. He's willing to forgive all of our sin. 
The psalm continues in verse 10. It says, He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is as high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Psalm says here that God hasn't given us what we deserve. He has not dealt with us according to our sins. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin were the payment. For our sin is death. But God's gift is eternal life through Jesus Christ. Death is the payment that we have earned by our sin. But here the psalmist says that God separates our sin from us. You think of the furthermost point to the east and the furthermost point to the west, that distance and beyond is how far your sins are removed from you when God forgives you and makes you pure. God sent his son to die on a cross and atone for the sins of all mankind. Jesus Christ is the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. When we submit ourselves to God's plan of salvation, we can be cleansed, we can be purified, we can have clean hands and a pure heart. But we must believe the gospel message or the good news that Jesus Christ died for our sins. We must repent or turn from the life of sin and turn to God to follow in his way, in his commands. We must confess that Jesus Christ is now the Lord of our life and that we no longer walk in our own ways or after the ways of an evil and an impure world. We must be baptized for remission of sins for that is when we find forgiveness. That is when we are made pure. That is when our sins are washed away. That is when the blood of Christ cleanses us completely and purifies us from our sins. Romans 6 and 4 says that when we are baptized, we are buried in that water. The old person that we once were died and is buried in that water. And we were raised up to walk in the newness of life. 2 Corinthians 5 and 17 says that in Christ we are a new creature. The old things have passed away and all things have become new. Our blood-stained hands are washed clean and our evil and impure hearts are made pure. If only things stayed that way. If only we could stop sinning forever. If only we could say, the day I was baptized, that was the last time I sinned. I remember that morning I got up and I told a lie, but since then... 1980, I've been sinless. The problem is we can't do that. Our temptations don't magically go away when we become a Christian. Yes, you were buried. Yes, you died to sin. But the things, the situations, or whatever it is that drives each one of us to sin are still there. Once we are made pure by God in baptism, how do we stay pure? How do we maintain our clean hands and our pure hearts? For we know that Jesus didn't go to the cross to cleanse us and purify us just for us to go back to living in sin and become impure again. Paul speaks to this in Romans 6 when he asks the question, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Should we continue 
to live in sin that we may continue to experience God's abundant grace? His answer was a strong no. He said, God forbid. He argues that we are dead to sin, therefore we should not serve sin. We should not allow it to reign in our lives. We now have the responsibility to keep ourselves pure and free from sin and doing what God requires in his word. We need to know what sin is. We need to know God's law. We need to know what is right so that we can know how to live in a manner that pleases God. And we find those answers in God's word. Psalms 119 and 11 says, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. The psalmist says that he hid God's word in his heart. The psalmist has studied God's word. The psalmist understands God's word. He has internalized God's word. And it is always with him. And he is committed to living by it. That is how he lives. And he did this for the purpose of not sinning or breaking God's commands. You need to know how God wants you to live before you can start trying to live a clean and pure life because you just might be doing it all wrong. As we try to live a pure life, we are going to fall short. But, but the difference for the Christian is that when we stumble and sin, we're not going to stay in our sin. We don't lay there defiled, but we get up. The Bible tells us how to deal with sin after we have been purified. Because the, pure, the, the pursuit of clean hands and a pure heart is a continual work. It requires getting up each and every day and choosing to walk in the light or walk in the way of God. It requires choosing not to yield to sin. It requires confessing our sins when we do sin. It takes work. It takes effort. And scripture acknowledges that. Colossians 3 and 5 says, put to death therefore what is earthly in you sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Paul speaking here of the effort involved in the life of a Christian. He says to put to death, to kill or slay the earthly desires that are in you, sexual immorality, impurity, or anything that is not clean, passion, evil, desire, covetousness, idolatry, says you need to put these desires as they exist in you to death. Make no mistake about it, God's wrath will be poured out on those whose lives are characterized by these sins. Continuing in verse 7, he says, in these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. He says, you all were once guilty of these sins. And let's be clear on who he's talking to. This is a letter written to the church. This isn't to the world. He's telling the church, you all were once guilty of this. You committed these sins. They characterized you. That was your life. But now, but now that life is no longer acceptable. You must put it all away and make a change. If only it were so easy. Finally, we could close the door or even slam the door on sin. As I said before, effort is required. If you're prone to get angry and overreact, 
You don't just snap your fingers and now you're a calm, easygoing person all the time. Effort is required. To be more accurate, a lifetime of effort is required because we should be in pursuit of a righteous life with Christ as our example for the remainder of our days. Although we will never be perfect like Christ, we should always be in pursuit of a righteous life, striving to live as he did. In 1 John 1, it says, This then is the message which we have heard of him, and declare unto you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's a lot said here that we need to understand. The message that John heard and that he proclaims is that God is light. Light stands for righteousness, truth, and purity. He says, in God there is no darkness at all. Darkness represents, obviously, the absence of light, the absence of righteousness, the abundance of evil, the absence of truth, the fullness of, full, of, of falsehood, the absence of purity, the being defiled. He says, if we claim to be of God, if we claim to be in his kingdom, and to have fellowship with him, but we walk in darkness, the Bible says that we are liars. We are not obeying his will when we choose to walk or consistently live in darkness. But if we walk, if we live in the light, we have fellowship with God, we have fellowship with those who also walk in the light. In other words, we have fellowship with other faithful Christians. And he says, the blood of Christ Jesus is actively working to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. I notice here that the word cleansing spoken of is not a one-time thing. He didn't say cleansed, past tense. He said cleanseth, which is an active verb that communicates that as we continue to walk in the light, the blood of Jesus continues to cleanse us and purify us from all sin. That is how we maintain our purity. We continue to walk in the light. But on the flip side, if we turn back to the world and we cease to walk in the light, the blood of Christ is no longer cleansing us of our sin because we have chosen to not walk in the light. And John writes that it is possible for us to deceive ourselves and to claim that we have no sin. Now, from what I understand in reading of the, the, the original recipients of this letter, some believe that they weren't guilty of the sins that they committed because they believed those sins were committed by the physical body and not their soul. And so they claim to live above sin, and therefore they believe they had no sin. John refutes that belief and says that the truth is not in them if they believe that. And John goes on to say in verse 9 that if we confess our sins, God is faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. This confession of sin is us confessing and acknowledging 
individual and specific sins in our lives. This is the bottom line. When we acknowledge our sins and we confess them and we seek forgiveness from God, God is faithful to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what we have just read in Scripture is that faithful Christians are those who continue to walk in the light, those who continue to walk in the ways of Christ, those who abide in his commands, those who confess their sins when they stumble, and the blood of Christ continues to, continues to cleanse and purify from sin. So how do we keep walking in the light like we should? How do I do that? How do I continue to experience this cleansing from sin? Once again, we must look to God's word for guidance and the answer. And so that is why it is so important for each one of us who has put on Christ, for each one of us who strives to continue to walk in the light, it is so important for us to continually study God's word. We must bathe our minds in it, immerse our minds in it, read it, study it, learn from it. And that takes effort. And we allow the Holy Spirit to guide us and to help us to recognize sin in our lives. As we read God's word and we see that we don't measure up, we see areas where we fall short of God's righteous standard, and we recognize there's, we need to do something about it. We learn to avoid sin. We learn to not put ourselves in situations that will likely lead us to sin. We learn to root sin out of our lives when we spot it. Romans 13 and 14 says, But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. In baptism, we put on Christ and we are a new creation. And being a new creation and being dead to sin, we should make no provision for the flesh in order to fulfill and satisfy it. So, what's that mean? That means we don't think about or make room for sin in our lives. We don't allow ourselves to turn back to the life of sin that we once lived and where we once pursued and consumed all the desires of our life. This makes me think of the phrase, burn the ships. According to the resource that I I used, this phrase, burn the ships, dates back to 1519. When a Spanish explorer, Hernan Cortez, landed in Mexico, the long journey across the seas had exhausted his crew, but he needed to motivate them to press on and accomplish the mission. With the ships they sailed on right there near the shore in plain sight, there was always that option to return home if things got too difficult. And so to address that, he commanded that the ships all be set on fire and burned. And with that action, there was no immediate return home. They had to press on to accomplish the mission. The command to make no provision for the flesh is what I'd call burning the ships. There are things in your life that you know that can pull you into sin, things that you know that can derail your spiritual life, Things that you know that can make you ineffective for Christ, you have a decision to make. It might be time to light that match and burn the ship. 
For each of us, that is different. I suspect that we all have practices or things in our lives that we need to examine and do something about. And I encourage you to burn the ships before it is too late. And the ramifications of not burning them is too difficult to undo. There are many other passages that we can look to that direct us to a life of purity. James 1 and 19 tells us to bridle or control our tongues, how we must govern our speech, for our speech reveals what is in our heart. 2 Timothy 2 and 22 tells us to flee or run from youthful lust and pursue righteousness with those who call on the Lord with a pure heart. 2 Peter 3 and 14 encourages us to be diligent to live a life that is without spot or undefiled. Titus 2 and 12 tells us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust and to live soberly, righteously, and godly lives as we wait for the return of Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 4 and 3 tells us to abstain from fornication or sexual immorality. 1 Thessalonians 5 and 22 tells us to abstain from all appearance of evil, evil in every form. 2 Corinthians 6 and 14 tells us to be careful about the relationships in our lives that become intertwined with people that can exert influence over us and turn us from God. Scripture tells us to separate ourselves from those relationships. Philippians 4 and 8 tells us to fill our minds or think on things that are true and honest and just and pure and lovely and of good report or well spoken of. That means we make it a point to fill our minds with good and positive things. They may take rooting some things out, turning some things away. But this is just a sample of the passages that we find in God's word that direct us on a life of purity. And there are more passages we can look to, but our time is running short. The point is, there is enough scripture for us to look to and guide us for an entire lifetime of pursuing clean hands and pure hearts. God expects us to study his word, to know his word, and to live by it. Because our lives, the way we live, the way we conduct ourselves, the way we speak, the way we even think, is evidence of the pure heart within us. A lifetime of pure living is what God expects from us. It is worth it. Jesus said in Matthew 5 and 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Seeing God in heaven is the ultimate desire for every Christian. Eternal life in heaven is what awaits the pure heart. Let us all strive for that. If you're a child of God, but the life you live has not exhibited the pure heart that we have talked about today, if you haven't been walking in the light, living with clean hands and a pure heart, I encourage you to do something about it to examine yourself. I encourage you to reflect on some of the scriptures that we read today and be willing to make those changes. I encourage you to hide God's word in your heart that you might not sin, to study his word, to understand his will for your life. I encourage you to put to death the sinful things in your life. 
encourage you to burn those ships, those things where perhaps you've, you've made provision for sin in your life. I encourage you to choose to continually, consistently walk in the light and confess your sins when you fall and keep walking in the light. But if you aren't a Christian, your heart is not clean. Sure, it may be clean by the world standard that says, hey, you're a good person, you don't steal, you haven't killed anybody, you're all right. But you're not all right in God's eyes. You're still in your sin. But there's good news, for Jesus lived a sinless life. And he went to the cross to pay the price for your sins. And you can become a Christian today. We are ready to study with you and help you understand all that God requires of you. Through faith and obedience to the commands of Jesus, you can be forgiven of your sins and become a new creation with a pure heart. If you're willing to come forward, we are ready to help you. We're ready to encourage you, and we encourage you every step of the way. If there are any requests of the church, anyone who wants to become a Christian today, if there are any requests of those uh, that you may have in the church, you can make those requests known now as we stand and sing the song that has been selected. At the cross, Christ will meet you there. He intercedes for you. Lift up your voice, leave with him your care. And 